Okay, we're all settled, and tomorrow night we will be here again. I was just reminded of that 30 seconds ago, so. Tonight, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. For those of you I didn't see Sunday, hi. Good to see you. couple of characters done. Watch them. Romans chapter 8. Is this announcement relevant about the ark? That's me. I'm the ark. A-R-K. No. We need to know if you're interested in going on the Tetelestai bus tour to Noah's Ark and the Creation Museum in August as soon as possible in order to keep reservations. Information and sign-up sheet are on the Information table, right? Okay, don't think about sailing away on it, though. Even though we are on the cusp of something bigger than the flood. Let's take a couple moments. Quiet, professional meditation. Father, I thank you for this great privilege of being in your presence, in the presence of your Son, who is present through the Spirit, in the presence of your people, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We thank you for this privilege. We pray that now the Holy Spirit will enlighten us and enable us to lay hold of the hope and the expectation that we have before us. Grant us a sense of urgency in the Holy Spirit, urgency without anxiety. And grant us peace and joy in the believing of this message. And allow this message, along with many others, to cause the hope that is in us to overflow. And we thank you as the God of hope that you're going to answer all these things and then beyond what we could ask or think. Because we've asked them in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus, amen. Tonight's message is going to be centered on one phrase, especially called the first fruits of the Spirit. And this is where two theological disciplines come together. Pneumatology and ecclesiology. There is no church Without the spirit, there is no effectual activity of the church without the spirit. There is no missionary activity without the spirit. There is no love without the spirit. There is no church without the spirit. Romans 8.18 to pick up where we started on Sunday or where we left off on Sunday. For by my accounting, Paul says, the sufferings of the present time of crisis. This we've identified as the clashing juncture of two ages, the evil age, which is transient and on the way out, and the messianic age, which broke in with the crucifixion and the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We, by my accounting, Paul said, the sufferings of the present time of crisis are not worthy of comparison. So he measures them on the scale here, which is a, a term related to the scale. And he says, look, if you put the sufferings of the present time on this scale, and then you put the glory that shall follow on this side of the scale, this one will weigh that way down and flip that right off the scale because there is no even balance. There's no symmetrical balance between the sufferings of the present age, which are necessary, especially in that we are in an agona, in the clashing of two ages. There is no symmetry there between the sufferings and the glory that's imminently to be apocalypsed, literally, to or even we could say into or in us. Apocalypto is, again, the key verb here in Romans 8, and it's, it's used in a prospective sense, while retrospectively it's used in Psalm 97, which is Psalm 98 in the English translation. There, the psalmist speaks from a place of fulfillment, and he looks back and sees that the glory of God has been apocalypsed through all of creation. This is prospective. So apocalypto is prospective here in Romans 8.18, while it's retrospective in Psalm 98. In other words, the glory of Messiah, which will be universally revealed, is seen from the standpoint of the consummation of the coming age in Psalm 98. But to us, from our standpoint, it is being on the cusp of that consummation. We are on the very verge of that stunning moment of consummation, which is called the telos or the eschaton. Romans 8.19, and I'm again just regathering some of the places we've been already, for the cre- creation now, we're going to see that this word, the creation, in, involves all of creation, all of the universe, which we call it, of proportionate being. By proportionate being, we mean from angels to animals to minerals. The entire creation, we also mean the entire creation in all of its times of existence, all of its times. The creation eagerly awaits the apocalypse, again, Revelation is better translated as apocalypse, of the sons of God, which is ultimately the manifestation of God's eschatological Israel. Verse 20, for the creation, once again, we're talking here about the sweep and the horizon of God's redemption, the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, the reconciliation that is in Christ Jesus the rectification or the setting right of all that's wrong. The sweep of it is all creation, and that happens to include the human part of creation. It's humbling to know that humanity is just an element of this creation, catesis, and therefore we are part of a universally reconciling and redemptive and restorative work of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, or we could even say frustration. Genesis uses the language, it was without form, void and without form. That doesn't mean that God made it that way. 
It means that God made it without the ability to have an independent existence. And it also means that the creation was created in itself without purpose and shape. Because that purpose and shape is only given to it by the creator's own indwelling and residence in it, which will be fully realized when God is all in all. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. So the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation. The expectation here is God's expectation, as, as we can look at it metaphorically. God has a hope, which is already realized in him. That the creation itself, notice three references now to the creation. The creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to corruption, or we could say slavery to decay. This is what physicists today would call, according to the second law of thermodynamics, liberated from the slavery to corruption or a decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And here we move into verse 22. For we know that all the creation, there it is. Paul is now giving an expanded amplification of meaning to what he means when he talks about creation. He has pasa, P-A-S-A, hey, katesis, or katesis, pasa, all the creation that means all of it in its entire sweep of time. Also the entire, we could call it as we do diachronically all of creation and all of its times will be recovered and restored and therefore saved and liberated from its slavery to decay. We know that all the creation, this has a twin verse In Revelation 5.13, where John said, And I heard all of the creation, panton katesis, the whole of creation. We know that all the creation laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs. That's a very important part of translation here. Until now. That means all of creation and all of its times, including now, including Paul's now, including our now. Verse 23, but not only is that so, on top of that, we, and please notice this phrase. I want to pretty much target this phrase tonight, that we, those who have the first fruits of the spirit, who are you? You are those who have the first fruits of the spirit. Who are we? We are among those who have the first fruits of the spirit. The proleptic new creation. The church. I'm not really comfortable with that word church. Not really comfortable with church. But the church which is also known as Christ corporate. In the original 
creation, the old creation, God created them male and female. I guess he just recognized two genders, which is, it means he's not woke. He's not woke yet. But he called their name Adam. Their name. That means he identified all humanity in the first creation with the man Adam. Do you realize what he's done in the new creation? Whether male or female, slave or free, black or white, brown or red, green or not. All go by the name of Christ. All are identified with the second Adam, Christ, in the new creation. He called their name. He calls your name Christ. Where Christ is all and he's in you all. And as a body is one, but has many parts, so also is Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. That's something that can be developed. So we aren't going to do that tonight. Not only is that so, on top of that, we sigh deeply in ourselves. Groan is okay. Sigh is pretty good. But we're talking about the kind of moaning, groaning, and even screaming of a woman in travail. This explains the sufferings of this present time. And specifically, our suffering with Christ, which must of necessity precede and be the very means of our entry into glory. Those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit sigh deeply in ourselves awaiting eagerly the adoption. That means the enjoyment of the full and glorious privileges of our sonship. That is the redemption of our bodies, the full and glorious enjoyment of our adoption as sons is going to be realized only in the redemption of our bodies. But God wants us, and this I think will come up at least Sunday in our communion service, where we are going to realize that God desires, and we have been realizing this, God desires, not only desires, but delights in us experiencing the kingdom of God in our bodily life now, before the redemption of our bodies. Now, even now, but to quote, Eberhard Jungel, then completely. The we here, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, refers to that which has come to be called the church, which is simply the English translation for the Greek, he ecclesia, ecclesia. The church, I'll use that term just for the purpose of understanding, the church is the messianic community within history. The church is the messianic community within history. Here, ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, the theology of the church, we could call it, joins with pneumatology or pneumatology, the study of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. The church participates in the second divine mission, which is the mission of the spirit. Remember, the two divine missions, that of the Son and that of the Spirit, form up into one 
divine rescue mission into this evil age, a salvific universal mission. The Spirit extends the first divine mission, that of the Son. And in that way, the church participates in the mission of the Son as a suffering servant in and to the world. The church is a suffering servant, as found in Isaiah 40 to 55, those 16 critical chapters in Isaiah. That is the freight train that carries us into the New Testament. I was asked a trick question in, of all things, a swimming pool this past few weeks ago, and a lady who I didn't know was a Bible teacher until she announced it asked me what I thought of Isaiah 40, and I thought, well, that's, that's the track that runs most powerfully into the New Testament. It opens with John the Baptist, went on, a, did about a two-sentence answer, and then she said, Well, I'm a Bible teacher, and she gave me approximately a five-page dissertation. So I realized maybe I better just keep it secret what I do for a living. But by the time we were done, I knew that lambs have rectangular pupils and a whole lot of other facts that See, you already found that more interesting than my message. I'm going to see if I can round her up and bring her up here. So then. Now, at this point, because of a decision that I reached in my somewhat protracted physical absence from you. And I mentioned this a little bit Sunday. I want to read a quote from Robert M. Doran in his book called Theology and the Dialectics of History. It's this thick, and I haven't read it all, but in this striking paragraph, the importance of the pastor-teacher as a pastor-theologian is stressed. And that's what I think God's calling for. If a pastor is going to be do his job, he's going to have to do theology, and he's going to have to live theology, and so is the congregation that he teaches. In the same rich paragraph, the mission of the church as the servant is stressed, and the two are definitely linked. The pastor as pastor theologian, and the church as the servant. This is one of the reasons why in the last week of our absence, I had studied for about 120 hours in Galatians, and I was just saying in the hall, I kind of looked up at the end of that and said, I'm not teaching Galatians, am I? Because I got the sense that that's not exactly what the Holy Spirit wants. Because of this, though, in the spirit of Galatians, in which Paul stormed the citadel of an error of his time, which I think was pretty much settled in his writing, although there's still a Jewish Christian perspective that was against Paul that is in the mainline churches today. The main perspective that people have is the Jewish Christian perspective that Paul was fighting against. And so we do have to fight that. But my calling now is much more theological. I think there's a theological turn, another of several reasons why 
Pam and I were in Florida longer than we expected is because this turn necessarily had to happen in the same spirit of Galatians. I want to storm the castles of certain doctrinal aberrations in our own time that have to be addressed as forcefully as Paul addressed the issue of circumcision in Galatia, which was an entirely different perspective than Paul's gospel. And again, we may have to still use Galatians in a great measure because the main body of what is called the church, which makes me hesitant to call it the church, offers a Jewish Christian perspective that is antagonistic to the gospel of the grace of God. And sometimes a Lutheran, it's falsely called that because Luther didn't really subscribe to this in the end, a Lutheran perspective on what we call justification by a person's personal faith, which is not, I don't think, as part of the gospel. But we have a lot of aberrations from cosmology to anthropology to soteriology. All the realms of theology have to be addressed again in a dialectic way to address aberrations By aberrations, I mean departures from the truth. The most notable and interesting has been the abhorrent and damnable doctrine, as Peter would call it, of an eternal hell for immortal souls, misbehaving or misbelieving, unbelieving souls. And that is entirely not biblical, as we know. But a dialectic will address aberrations of doctrine and then bring the truth out in all the greater light. For there must be heresies so that the doctrines that are approved will will shine out all the more. That's going to require then a theological bent, which will be oddly and kind of in a weird paradoxical way more scriptural than a line-by-line study in Galatians. It will involve much more, bringing much more scripture to the fore and much more conflations of the word so I want you to know that as a congregation I announced it sort of Sunday and I'm doing it tonight but in this striking paragraph we have a lot of this come together the mission of the church as the servant and Jesus said follow my example as he stripped his garment and put on a slave's apron and washed the feet of men theology is an intellectual ministry this is Duran Robert M. Doran, D-O-R-A-N, quote, theology is an intellectual ministry of the church, evoking the church as servant of God in the world. But it is also a dimension of the church's ministry in the situation itself, and so in the world, conceived as a theological reality and understood in theological terms. In both capacities, as servant of the church and as a dimension of the church's servanthood before God in the world, living theology, which is coincident with the Christian thinker growing to the reflective and self-appropriating stature of the subject in Christ Jesus. That simply means that the Christian thinker or the student or the pastor teacher who studies at the same time appropriates himself as a subject in Christ Jesus. He comes to know himself, as Paul did, a man in Christ Jesus, so that that can be men and women in the congregation can know themselves as men and women in Christ Jesus, identified with Christ Jesus. That's what the world needs to be woke to. 
will itself be marked by the sign of the servant. I'm, I'm saying, I'm still quoting here, exercised under the standard of the cross, carried out within the horizon, constituted by the theologian's own assent to the invitation to participate in the divinely originated solution to the problem of evil. Thus, it will be a function of a redemptive love at work in the situation. That's our present time, on the level of our present time, our present sitzum leben, as the Germans call it, our present situation in this world. So again, it says, it will be a function of redemptive love at work in the situation. This is what I highlighted. Mediating the transition to an alternative situation that approximates more closely the rule of God in human affairs. That means the church begins to experience the kingdom of God and it presents to the world in some measure an alternative to the chaotic reality of our time. And it's one that is more appropriate or more approximates the rule of God in human affairs. Then in closing, he says, The theologian, no less than any other minister of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus, stands under the injunction to, quote, proclaim the message and, welcome or unwelcome, insist on it, refute falsehood, correct error, call to obedience, but do all with patience and with the intention of teaching. That's the call in 2 Timothy 4.1b to 2 Timothy 4.2. That is the call on the pastor teacher and then on the church. So to continue, this quote is finished. The message on which we insist is what I am writing now. I'm thinking this after I read that. The message on which we insist is the message of USSJC, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, and, and I've modified this acronym a little bit, U-R-R-R-I-C-C, U-R-R-R-I-C-C, which means the universal, reconciling, redemptive, and rectifying influence of the cross of Christ, a message upon which we insist whether it's welcome or not welcome. Doesn't mean we have to browbeat people. Doesn't mean that we have to unduly offend people. But that's what Second Timothy says. The old King James said, instant, in season and out of season. It means insisting whether welcome or not welcome in your generation. It is welcome in many quarters of our generation. It is unwelcome in many quarters of that thing called the church. We insist on the message. It's also known as what we're going to see again in Romans sixteen twenty five, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. That mystery has been kept silent, even though it's in the words and the writings of the prophets. But by a divine decree of the eternal God, it is now to be manifested and proclaimed. So I figure I've got to do what the eternal God decreed and commanded. That might be a good idea. 
proclaiming Jesus Christ according to the revelation of what mystery are we talking about here? Well, the mystery of God's will, which is to sum up everything in Christ Jesus, all things, and to reconcile in him all things in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 1.10. So why not insist on it? And so we insist on the message, whether it is welcome or unwelcome, <laughs> simply because it's the truth. It's the truth that liberates. It's the truth that sets free. Moreover, it's the truth that evokes faith. It kindles it or ignites faith and hope in a faithless and hopeless world. It is a message which, by the power of the Spirit of God, who awoke and raised Jesus from the dead, awakens those who are asleep and causes people in the death of emptiness and despair to rise from that death so that Christ, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, shines on them. By this message, the long-held error of an eternal hell for disobedient souls is strongly, strenuously, vehemently refuted. And strongholds of aberrations of humanly and demonically conceived dogma alive and well in our time, demolished. That's why the turn to theology. For this reason, I have decided to become even more, quote, theological, close quote, in my teaching and more emphatic in my preaching of the message of universal reconciliation, Colossians 1.20. Now, Robert M. Duran represents a passel of Christian theologians that weren't always entirely favored by the Catholic Church, though they pretty much grew up in the Catholic Church. Lonergan was among them. One of the statements I read recently made me understand why they kind of pushed him to the side, because he said the doctrines that we preach must be preached because they are the truth, despite what eminent men of the church and men of high esteem in the church may think. Bingo, bye-bye, Bernie. I really feel the burn with Bernie, if you're talking about Bernard Lonergan. And he wasn't even a Vermonter. He was a darn Canadian. But anyways, in a remarkably like-minded and exceedingly loaded paragraph, in which Richard Bauckham makes many references and one direct quote from Jürgen Moltmann. Incidentally, Jürgen Moltmann's birthday was April 8th, day after Sunday, Monday, 93 years of age. Yes, he's still alive. So you might call him a consummate Protestant in more ways than one. He wrote, and again, this is not Moltmann himself, although it's Richard Bauckham making four references from one of the most remarkable books that Jürgen Moltmann wrote called The Church in the Power of the Spirit. And I thought that was interesting because it brings in ecclesiology and pneumatology, Church in the Power of the Spirit. Richard Bauckham, who wrote The Theology of Jürgen Moltmann, a $60 paperback, 
combining four passages from the church and the power of the spirit presents Moltmann's description of the church as follows. And I think you'll find some like-mindedness here with R.M. Duran. He says, quote, the church is not yet the kingdom of God, but it is its anticipation in history. Christianity is not yet the new mankind, but it is its vanguard in an anticipatory and fragmentary and naturally imperfect form. The church represents the future of the whole of reality and so mediates the eschatological future to the world. Therefore, and I highlighted this this sentence, the church does not exist for itself, but in the service of the kingdom of God in the world. For the church to be the messianic fellowship means to participate in Christ's mission in this sense. That's Richard Bauckham making four references to Church and the power of the Spirit. So ecclesiology, here I'm getting to be theological, is inseparable from pneumatology. Because without the Spirit, there is no mission. There is no Christian life. There is no real love. There is no vital, active hope. No participation in Christ's faithfulness. There is no effective prayer. There is no church. The first fruits of the spirit is really something then as a phrase. It's really something. I used to read first fruits of the spirit and just kind of pass over it. And then one day I stopped and said, the first fruits of the spirit is really something. Circumcision and uncircumcision, nothing. First fruits of the spirit, that's really something. Circumcision or uncircumcision, nothing. A new creation, now there's something. Circumcision and uncircumcision, nothing. But faith working by love in Christ Jesus by the Spirit, that's really something. The first fruits of the Spirit then, well, that's really something. It is the first part of the first, or we could say the first wave of a universal outpouring of the spirit of Yahweh, covenant God of Israel. For in Joel 2.28, if you want, you can turn there. Joel is his name. Joel. Joel 2.28. The Septuagint now, not to confuse you, has it at 3.1. So I'm telling you, because as students of the word, you're going to run into this. If you study the Septuagint, you're going to realize that it has sometimes different numbers representing different, the same verses in the English translation and the Septuagint will have different numerical reference. For example, English Joel 2.28, Septuagint, Greek translation, 3.1. But notice what it says here. And it will come to pass after these things that I will pour out Here we have the future active indicative, third person singular form of the the verb ekkeo, which is interesting. I'm only mentioning it for this reason. 
I haven't given up exegesis. It has to go with theology, but E-K-C-H-E-O. Ek-keo. Looks like this in the English transliteration. And that's the same that's used, the same verb that's used in also the third person singular in Romans 5, 5. The Holy Spirit pours out ekeo, the love of God in our hearts, throughout our hearts, flooding our hearts, the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my spirit ekeo, says God. Speaking here as God the Father. In Titus 3, 6, the action of God the Father in begetting us by his own will to be a kind of first fruits of his new creation in James 1.18. And so Titus 3.6 says that in 3.5, it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the pouring out or the plenteous pouring out of the spirit which he poured out so plentifully on the same word, ek, keo, Titus 3.6. And that's when God the Father begot us By his own will. We are not begotten by our will. We're not even saved by our decision. We're saved by a divine decision. We are begotten by a divine will and divine power. Into to become what? The first fruits. There it is again of his new creation. Put James 1.18 to Romans 8.23. And you'll find that those who have the first fruits of this outpouring of the spirit. Constitute a kind of first fruits of a universal new creation. You just saw doctrine formed right in front of your eyes. They are created now, not in the beginning, but now Isaiah 48 verse seven, my spirit, he says on all flesh. Let me back up and read it again without any commentary. And I, it will come to pass after these things that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Epipasan sarkan. Epi pasan sarka epi upon pasan p a s a n all seen that word already tonight sarka all flesh that means all living humanity in this case although it could refer to all that is creation all that is created reality I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Now here it is as doctrine develops. If God is to pour out his spirit on all flesh and has only poured it out for now on those to whom he has given faith, Galatians 3, 1 to 5, then those upon whom he has so far poured out his spirit have the first fruits of the spirit and have become the first fruits of a universal new creation of God. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of promise or the spirit who was promised. He's called that in Luke 24, 49, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until I send the promise of my father to you. That's the spirit the promised spirit because in acts one eight, when the spirit comes upon you, which my father promised, then you will be witnesses of mine in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. So Luke twenty four forty nine, 
along with Acts 1.8. And Luke 24.49b also speaks of being endued with power or clothed with power from on high. So regarding Joel 3, 1 to 5, in Peter's Pentecostal sermon, you want to know what a Pentecostal sermon is like? Read Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Peter's Pentecostal sermon, I want to consider this briefly, a note from the Net Bible. This is fresh bread, but I did this many, a couple, few months ago, and I put the bread in the freezer, so now it's still fresh. It's been frozen for a while. The Net Bible, New English Translation, on Joel 2.28 reads this. This passage plays a key role in the apostolic explanation of the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2.17-21. to Peter introduces his quotation of this passage with, quote, This is what was spoken, or this is that, spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he, they cite Acts 2.16, and there's a similar Pesher formula used at Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. But then he goes on to say, the New Testament experience at Pentecost is thus seen in some sense as a fulfillment of this Old Testament passage, even though that experience did not exhaustively fulfill Joel's words. Some portions of Joel's prophecy have no precise counterpart in that experience. For example, there is nothing in the experience, notice how many times they say experience, this is going to come up again soon, recorded in Acts 2 that exactly corresponds to the earthly and heavenly signs described in Joel 3, 3-4. But inasmuch as the messianic age had already begun and the, quote, last days close quote, had already commenced with the coming of the Messiah, and then they say confer with Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, Peter was able to point to Joel 3, 1 to 5 as a text that was relevant to the advent of Jesus and the bestowal of the Spirit. The equative language that Peter employs, quote, this is that, close quote, stresses, and this is what I highlight, an incipient fulfillment of the Joel passage without precluding or minimizing a yet future and more exhaustive fulfillment in events associated with the return of Christ. Now, when the net note calls, this is me now, when the net note calls it a yet future and more exhaustive fulfillment, I would interpret that as, and call it biblically, the universal fulfillment. When the Spirit is poured out on flesh, it's with effect. When he's poured out on one who is dead in sins, that one is made alive together with Christ and with the very life of Christ. When the Spirit is poured out on dead bodies in graves or scattered across the earth and under the ocean, the effect is salvific and creative, and the redemption of the human body is created. So the Holy Spirit can't be poured out without having some regenerative effect, some salvific effect. So when God says he's going to pour out his Spirit on all flesh, 
all flesh, all humanity in all of its times, and all creation in all of its times will experience a saving effect from that, the pouring of the Spirit. You who have the first fruits of the Spirit have been awakened by faith to the universally saving significance of Christ. So you have a hope that isn't just for yourself or your family or the church, but for the world and for the universe of proportionate being. And you avoid the error of calling the universe God and seeing the universe as ultimate reality and saying, I'm praying for the universe to lead me and direct me and the universe will show me and the universe will do this and the universe will do that. But the universe, my friend, is subject to decay. So you are worshiping a corrupted, corruptible God instead of the incorruptible God who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Romans one twenty five. In closing, then, the spirit of promise is the spirit that was promised. The spirit as the promise is a significant in Paul's epistles, not least in Galatians. In Galatians, in fact, I'll just tell you what I would have taught Galatians as, and it would be under the title PAS, P-A-S, Paul's, it means all, but it also means Paul's apocalyptic sermon. It's what it was. That's a six-chapter sermon. It was an apocalyptic sermon, Paul's apocalyptic sermon. It was also under the category of a strange genre of writing called the magical letter. So I'm going to be bringing out a lot of this. It's not going to be wasted, all the study I did in Galatians, but I, don't, I just don't think right now it's going to be verse by verse because of the turn in theology. But in Galatians, Paul relates the promise to Abraham with the blessing of Abraham. In other words, the blessing of Abraham is the promise to Abraham of the Holy Spirit. That promise would be what? To all nations. In the one seed of Abraham, which is Christ. Christ being the one seed in Galatians 3.16. So in Galatians, Paul relates the promise to Abraham with the blessing of Abraham, which is the spirit. The blessing of Abraham, that is the spirit, Holy Spirit, is for all the nations, also known as all flesh, who are to be blessed in the singular seed, Christ. Galatians 3.16, and also see Ephesians 1.10. That's going to be primary, a prime verse. It's going to be at the head of the spear in our assault on the citadels of aberrant doctrines that have taken away Christian hope and the hope of the world. In Ephesians 1.13 to 14, speaking of Ephesians 1, the saints are said to have been, quote, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Or, translated this way, the promise, the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promise, the Holy Spirit. Or, we could extend it a little bit, if, it, we, if I was a Targum writer, the promised by the Father, sent by the Son, Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by the promise by the Father and sent by the Son, Holy Spirit. And the Son doesn't just send the Holy Spirit. He accompanies the Holy Spirit, and that's why he's present with us here and will be present at the breaking of the bread 
and the drinking of the cup on communion Sunday. And he will be present here, as he always is, tomorrow night. And every time we meet, for we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The promise by the Father, sent by the Son, Holy Spirit. So here we are given an understanding of what it means in 1 Peter 4.10 to speak of the salvation, especially of those who presently believe. God is the Savior of all humanity, but especially of that group of humanity who believe, especially, as we've said many, many times before, but not exclusively of those that believe. Because, so this 1 Timothy 4.10 becomes interpretive of the whole thing. 1 Timothy 4.10. So those who have the first fruits of the Spirit means in 1 Timothy 4.10 speak it, that it is speaking of those who presently believe. That is in this present transient evil age. You're not going to change this evil age. But as a church moves in the power of the Spirit, and every time the Holy Spirit, the sense of the Holy Spirit is with you. You may have sensed it in conversations that you have, or as the word comes up when you're talking, and you say, wow, this is like it's going to be. And it is like it's going to be. The Holy Spirit, the experience of the Holy Spirit is the experience of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming right in the midst of those experiences of the Holy Spirit and the word and the joy that's unspeakable and the peace that passes understanding that's in the midst sometimes and it's too fleeting really, isn't it? It's too fleeting, but it can be for a moment. It can be for an hour. It can be during the course of a little conversation or confab of believers at a picnic or in a place like this. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming into its total consummation. And it comes like this in these experiences of the Holy Spirit. Much more on that is coming. Now, especially among those who believe. What does Romans 15, 13 say? Again, this is a pivotal verse. It's the last verse of the main body of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And it says there that may you enjoy peace and joy in the believing. In the believing. In the believing of this message of the proclamation of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance connected to the theology of the cross. In the believing of this, you experience peace and joy. But in Romans 14, 17, that peace and joy is in the Holy Spirit. The experience of the Holy Spirit is righteousness, peace, and joy. But that's also what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is righteousness, which means love in that case, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's how the kingdom of God is coming. We pray, let your kingdom come, and it does come. It comes in little moments. It comes in seemingly minimal moments of time and then seems to become invisible to us and inexperienceable to us again, just like Jesus when he 
broke the bread. They, their eyes were opened. They woke and they saw who he was. But as soon as they saw who he was, he became invisible again. And you're like, ah, uh. but there's going to come a time when your joy will be so full that nothing will ever take it away again. And that's imminent. They, and I put in parentheses, we, Romans 8, 23, are given the first fruits of the spirit, the spirit that God promised would be poured out on all of flesh with effect. God doesn't pour out his spirit on all flesh to no effect, but to a saving effect in every single case. I want you to understand that because it's extremely important. The spirit that God promised would be poured out on all flesh with effect has already been poured out on your flesh with the effect of evoking faith in Jesus Christ and also evoking faith that you are justified on the basis of his faithful death and resurrection from the dead. So they... Romans 8.23, are we also who are given the first fruits of the Spirit, which is the same Spirit that wakened Jesus from the dead and raised him from the dead, that it raised dead Jesus from the dead, is the same Spirit that God promised would be poured out on all flesh with effect, the saving and sanctifying effect of the Spirit. Now, if we view this through the lens of eschatology, we don't have to ask the question. You still can if you want, but I don't have to anymore. You don't really have to ask this question. Why does God give some faith and not others in the course of history? Why does he do that? You don't have to ask that question because, as Jesus told the parable, those who labor in the field all day long, and all day long is this age, this juncture of the ages, they're not going to have anything over those who come in at the end of the day. I actually said at the end of the day, but with effect. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We're grateful for your universal plan of salvation, which is only understandable in the, through the lens of of the theology of the cross. As Herr Moltmann said, and he said with effect, the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross is universal salvation. And we thank you, Father. Keep on waking us up, and once we're woke, keep us awake. Let hope nourish our faith and let our faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, be continually enriched and strengthened with perseverance. For as the time approaches, the universe will have decayed even more than it has already. History may even undergo a decadence that is greater than has ever been seen in history, but at the same time, your kingdom is going to be experienced by those with the first fruits of the Spirit 
who will also present to this chaotic society an alternative kind of living that approximates more closely the rule of God in history. Only you can make that effective. Having said that, all I can do is sit back, wait, and watch the salvation of the Lord.